Sometimes in life we just suffer. Sometimes it's from being totally withdrawn. Or so much stress that we are totally anxious. Or so tired that we are totally burnt out. But our current position is not our final destination. No, indeed. There's hope. So whether it's your personal life, your career, your relationship, your business, or your job, we say there's reason to believe again. And we present from Andy's personal development, the breakout room. It's the place for health, happiness, and prosperity. Stay tuned for more. Our next guest in the breakout room is one of the world's leading experts on trust with over 20 years of experience. His PhD, Building Trust in Hostile Environments from Duke University, established him as a global leader for governments, businesses, and NGOs on practical approaches to building trust. His name is Daryl Sticker. This is our guest with his companion, Drake. This publication is entitled Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. So, let's welcome this trust expert and coach, Carol Sticker, live in the breakout. Okay, so we are live and this is Andy of Andy's Personal Development in the breakout room with our special guest, Daryl Stickle. And he's one of the world's leading experts on trust with over 20 years of experience. His PhD, Building Trust in Hostile Environments from Duke University, established him as a global leader for governments, businesses, and NGOs on practical approaches to building trust. Daryl, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, sir? Better now that I'm hanging out with you, Andy. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. That's so good to hear. And thank you for coming on, my friend. You're very welcome. So before I ask you a bit about your history, which I'm sure will be quite intriguing, tell us how relevant what you're doing in terms of that specific term, trust, is important, not only for people in their personal lives, but their professional lives as well. How relevant is that key component today in the world as we face challenges? Wow. Um, I'm biased, but I think it's one of the most important things. It's uh, Trust is a social lubricant that allows us to function. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of research that tells us that higher trust levels lead to higher returns to shareholders, higher engagement, higher uh, retention. Um, more flexibility, more profitability. It just for for organizations, it's it's the thing that drives them. And we've seen research that tells us that communities or countries that have higher trust levels 
tend to have higher socioeconomic development as well. Um, but if I think about the problems that we're facing right now, Andy, things like climate change and race relations and international conflict and, and battles between different subgroups of the population, they're complex and they all require a level of collective collaborative action right. for us to solve them. And, and trust is at the lowest levels we've ever seen. Okay. And what do you think has contributed to it being at the lowest level that, according to you, we have ever seen? What was the main factor for that negative um, response to trust? So right now, I believe that trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. All right. And trust is the willingness to make ourselves vulnerable when we can't completely predict how someone else is going to behave. Okay. That's, so for me, it's uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. Mm -hmm. And we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. All right. And so that means that early in relationships, uncertainty can be fairly high, which means the range of vulnerability we can tolerate is actually pretty small. Okay. As those relationships get deeper, the range of vulnerability we can tolerate starts to grow. Right. If we think about what's gone on over the last decade, our vulnerability certainly hasn't gone down. Mm. If anything, it, it feels like it might be inching up a bit. But our, but our uncertainty is spiking all over the place, Andy. Yeah, yeah. So we're seeing um, technological changes. We're seeing changes in norms and values. We're seeing, you know, pandemics. We're seeing uh, some of the changes that we see in terms of expectations of one another are our lack of clearly defined roles. None of these things are bad. They just provoke a lot of uncertainty. Right. And so that means that our uncertainty is bouncing up and down, which means our perception of risk is bouncing up and down. Yeah. I hear and so that, that means that we're incredibly uncomfortable. We're, we're struggling to be vulnerable with one another because any additional vulnerability feels like it's impossible for us. All right, great. Thanks for sharing, Daryl. I understand and I appreciate that. It makes a whole lot of sense. So tell us a bit about yourself, Daryl Stickle, the individual. What was it like for you as a young man growing up? What, what were some of the challenges that you face as an individual? Wow. Um, so... This is sort of where my uh, my my book starts in chapter one by talking about the road that got me to where I am, mm -hmm. um, and it, and it definitely informed me. and And I I like to say that sometimes a hard road can be a good teacher. Yeah, um, I was born and raised in a small town in northern Canada. Uh, winters were pretty harsh; minus forty was not unusual. Um, it's about 12 or 13,000 people, and it was at least an hour drive to the next small community. Um, and it, in that backdrop, you know, you, you learned that people had to pull together. Um, you, if your neighbor needed help, you helped. And one of the things I learned was that if I could be helpful, I should be. Okay. And... Um, I had a, a tumultuous upbringing. Um, my father was, uh, when I was very young, he was injured in an auto, automobile accident, lost his leg, cracked his pelvis, broke his hip, crushed a couple of vertebrae in his back. And he was in pain for the rest of his life. And he, he self-medicated with alcohol and there was a lot of pain and anger in him. Um, 
And that led to a challenging childhood. Um, and then when I was 17, I was playing hockey and I was attacked by a fan with a club, um, beaten almost to death. And I'm, I'm legally blind now. I was visually impaired then. Um, and I had decided that what I needed to do was learn how to think for a living. And now all of a sudden, here I am at 17. I go from being on the honor roll to failing all my classes. I've got the attention span of a fruit fly. And I, I am struggling. And I feel hopeless and helpless. And that experience, you know, and I had a series of concussions after that because the first one was so severe. That experience really taught me both humility and empathy. And, you know, I eventually went to university and I'd find myself sitting on the bus and somebody would sit down next to me and say, I'm just really having a hard time. Yeah. So there was something about me, Andy, that made people comfortable coming to me and opening up. And I, I really wanted to understand what that was. That's what drove me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So emotionally, how did it make you feel in terms of that level of emotional intelligence that you were one minute on the honor roll and then all of a sudden you just couldn't deal with the academics, you were struggling. How was that upheaval emotionally for you, Daryl? It's devastating. Um, you know, because such a big part of my sense of self was being smart. Yeah. Um, being able to understand and I helped others, right. you know, when people were struggling in school, I was the one who would sit down next to them and, and say, look, let me try to find a different way to explain this to you. People would come to me fairly often with things that they were struggling with. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I was the one who I just couldn't function. I was sleeping all the time. Um, and it was a, it was a bit of a nightmare. Okay. Andy. And, you know, I, I recovered, you know, and I, I finished my undergraduate degree, did my master's, wrote my doctoral thesis, spoke at Harvard, all kinds of things. Right. So clearly I recovered, but then in 2001, I was involved in a car accident I ended up with post-concussion syndrome and it just didn't go away. And so lots of fatigue and that feeling of loss. Yeah. You know, that sense that what I was is not what I am now. And early on in that process, we have this tendency to romanticize what we were and vilify what we are. So the gap's even greater than it really is. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a hard journey. One of my favorite quotes is Jack Dempsey's quote that says, a champion is someone who gets up when they can't. And for me, there's a story of resilience. There's a story, and I still want to help people. And I do. Yeah. Um, the only frustration for me now, Andy, is not helping enough people. I hear you, Darrell. That's a great story, man. Thanks for sharing. I can hear the passion in your voice. It reminds me of a speech that I heard by the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at, at a high school graduation in a school in St. Louis, Missouri. And he was saying to them, there are times in your life when you have to find a way to create a blueprint 
And when you get the blueprint done, make sure you have two things to accompany the blueprint. One, a time frame to finish the blueprint and two, count the cost. Always know what it's going to cost you to get your blueprint done. But I want you to see the blueprint as your life. And when you feel that you're young and you can do all that you can, soar. And if you can't soar for some reason that you ought to fly, and if challenges are preventing you from flying, guess what? Run. And then if running becomes a challenge, walk. And then if for some reason you can't walk, crawl. But don't do nothing. Always do something. Yeah, and wow. I hear what you're saying with Jack Dempsey, man. It just makes so much more sense. And it's empowering. So thank you for sharing, Dallin. We really appreciate that. Now, you've had the opportunity to work with uh, McKinsey and company in their Toronto office. You're yep. Canadian military on trust building in Afghanistan. How did you find yourself being available for these two entities, especially the Canadian military, with something as sensitive as trust building in Afghanistan. What was that experience like for you, Darrell? Uh, it was pretty amazing. You know, M McKinsey was sort of where I went right after I finished my, my doctoral thesis. And it taught me a lot about application and working with clients and those kinds of things. Um, after I was injured, I, you know, I had a colleague come to me and say, hey, I just want you to want you to help us understand trust and so it was a it was a mutual fund company right and and so i'm standing in front of 400 people all of a sudden talking about sustainable competitive advantage right and i said that that means you do something better than your competition and, and they can't copy it but you don't do anything i can't copy and so i said the only thing you can do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers right and they said that's it that's our strategy and that was sort of they, they then asked me to take my thesis and turn it into a workshop. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the journey of really learning how to apply not only the concepts that I developed, but communicate them in a way that people could understand them. Okay. And after 18 months, they, they hired a professional survey firm, found out the trust was the primary driver of the sales decision and that they were more trusted than anybody else. And they generated 75 cents of every new dollar that came into the industry for the next two years. Yeah, great. And so they're, they were part of a global services firm, global financial services firm. And that firm started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what these folks were doing. And, and so for me, that was the start of this incredible learning journey. A friend of mine ended up being involved with the Canadian military and asked me, you know, can you help us? Yeah. And he said, it's probably too late in Afghanistan. Hmm. Um, we've been there for years. We've seen absolutely no economic development because trust levels are so low. Okay. People aren't willing to, they're not willing to, to get an education or invest in anything that has a future payoff because they don't believe it'll come. Yeah. And so I started working with them on how to create pockets of safety and security so that people could start a normal life. Um, and their intent was that it would be used for the next conflict. Okay. Um, because it was a learning laboratory. Right. And um, I learned so much, Andy. Um, 
you know, one of the things I, and this is going to sound just so obvious after I say it. One of the things I do that most people don't do when they talk about trust is I talk about the context. Yeah. You know, I talked about uncertainty before, you know, uncertainty times vulnerability equals risk. Well, uncertainty comes from us as individuals and it comes from the context we're embedded in. Mm-hmm. And most of the research doesn't talk about context at all, but that allows us to explain why we trust some people immediately without knowing them at all. And we distrust others immediately right. without knowing them. And we don't always understand the reasons for that, but there's, there's something going on in the context. And what I came to understand when I was working with the Canadian military was that one guy standing there with a machine gun looks a lot like another guy standing there with a machine gun. Hmm. And the context was really the driving factor of whether we were going to make any progress or not. And in places with strong central governments, there's this reliance on the formal elements of social control, the formal elements of the context. We believe that people will follow the rules. Yeah. But in a place like Afghanistan, where there's no real central government, where the rules are fluid at best, it's all those informal elements. It's the relationships that we have. It's the community that we're part of. It's who we're related to, what religion we belong to. Those informal ties are the ones that really come to the surface. And so we were missing a lot when it came to trying to build trust with the locals because we just really didn't understand how to speak to them properly. Okay. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, interesting, Daryl. Thanks for sharing. Okay, so your book is Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. What is the key message of your publication, Daryl, and what pushed you to actually put it into writing? So there's a couple of things. Um, I was having these incredible moments of impact, you know, yeah. working with working with parents who are estranged from their kids and, and seeing that turn around within a couple of months mm-hmm. or seeing leaders who were floundering and all of a sudden thriving after, you know, just a few conversations and, and some exposure to the model. And I felt like I was dropping grains of sand into the ocean, Andy. Hmm. Wow. And I wanted people to come alongside me and pick up great big rocks. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wrote the book is I wanted everyone to have access to the model that I've developed and, and the approach that I take. I wrote it so that people could read it and understand it. It's, it's, it's extremely readable. It's not some academic tome. It's, it's got lots of stories and application. Yeah, because there's all kinds of people talking about how important trust is and and how bad things are in terms of our lack of it, but almost no one is talking about how to actually build it. Okay, and that's what I've been doing for the last twenty years, and I, I wanted to share it as broadly with the world as I could. Mm-hmm. And so, I wrote the book. Uh, the first few chapters explain sort of why trust is important and the impact that it has on our lives in a bunch of different places. And then chapter five is, here's the model, and I'm not holding anything back. I'm going to explain it as as clearly as I can. Chapter six is, here's how you pull the levers. I think that there are 10 levers we can pull. Mm -hmm. We each have the ability to build trust. Some are just better than others. Okay. Those who are not very good at building trust have a lever that they pull. Those who are better have multiple levers. Hmm. Those who are really good, Andy, they have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. Right. 
And so what I try to do in the book and in my masterclass that I offer and in the eight-week courses that I offer is teach people about the levers and how to pull them. Okay. So that's the intent of the book. That's the intent of everything I do. You know, with your listeners today, I want them to understand that trust is something we can actually take action on. It's a skill that we can build. And part of the challenge is, is that 95% of believe people believe they're more trustworthy than average. And that's, that's not just impossible statistically. It, It creates problems because say you and I were having a disagreement in each of our heads, we would think, wow, that guy really needs to learn more about building trust. Hmm. And we would think it was the other person's problem to deal with, not our own. Okay. And so, you know, my message is really about, here's what trust is, here's how it works. Let's create some clarity and let's give people a set of tools because we need to be more intentional now than we've ever been when it comes to building trust. Yeah, quite interesting, Daryl. I want to piggyback a little bit on what you were saying. And I guess I will do that by asking you this question. Does that desire for trust to be something that is an open virtue, let me put it that way, really begin with the individual, me, my innate desire to trust in terms of, I trust myself first. And therefore, if I believe in the things that I am, as I come to tune with my real self, do I take that now and put it out into the world? Or do I seek to just build relationships and as people give me the information, then I decide, whether I'm going to trust them or not. Where does it begin, Darren? Wow. Um, for me, we have an innate desire to connect okay. with each other. Okay. And I try to help people close the gap between how much they should be trusted and how much they actually are. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges we often face particularly in today's environment is we want to connect in a meaningful way we want to have impact in each other's lives yeah we want to have impact in the world whether it's whether it's a ceo leading a company that's struggling or a mom that's trying to connect with her with her child that's transitioning from one phase of life to another you know uh i think the one that I tend to focus on most, because I work with parents and families as well. Right. The one I tend to focus on most is when they're transitioning into teenagers, we want them talking to us mm-hmm. about the challenges they're facing. We don't want them talking to their friends, taking their advice. Right. No one loves them or cares about them more than we do. Yeah. And so I think the desire to build trust, the desire to, to be heard and understood in the world is a deep, deep need in each of us to be part of a group, a part of a collective, to have impact and, and, and positive impact in the world. Um, you know, when I, when I teach, or I'm, I'll find myself standing in front of a group of parents, and one of the levers that we can pull is benevolence. It's right. this belief that we have each other's interests at heart, that, I, that I'm going to look out for you. And I'll say to these parents, I say, who here has their kid's best interest at heart? And how many hands do you think go up? Hmm. Like all of them, right? Yes. And then I flip the question and I say, how many of your kids would say that? Wow. 
and it's about a third and it's somewhat hesitant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if it's not obvious in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, then how does a leader show benevolence in a way that lands for those they lead or, or convince their organization to do that for clients that they serve. And so that's, you know, one of the levers that we can pull. And I find myself working with people who will say, well, how do I even start? Right. How do, how do I pull that lever in a way that makes it land? Cause imagine you and I are having dinner together and one of your listeners walks by and sees me eating a big piece of cheesecake because I love cheesecake or ice cream, right? Yeah. I got this big dessert in front of me and they say, oh God, Daryl, you're not going to eat that, are you? Their heart is in the right place. They, they're caring about my, my well-being, my, you know, and what they don't understand is that, Andy, this body doesn't just happen, right? There's, there's years of neglect involved. There's bad decisions all over the place. And because they haven't included me in the conversation, they think they're being benevolent, but it doesn't land that way. Okay. And so what I'll do with my clients is I'll give them a template for a conversation to start. All right. And that template starts off with, you know, Daryl started talking about benevolence as one of the levers we can pull to build trust. He says, it's really important for us to connect. And I think that I act in a way that's benevolent, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have, have you ever experienced that, Andy? Yes, I have. Yeah, right? <laughs> Yes. So overwhelmingly, people will say yes to that question. Mm -hmm. But have you ever had somebody really act in your best interest, Andy? Like really felt like someone had your back? Yeah, you do. And, and I guess, well, I, I, I'm not guessing, but I know that for a fact, based on the communication that is coming from the person and the action that comes after the communication, you can tell. That there's a connection you know and and you believe that hey you know what despite i may not feel comfortable about what they're telling me because sometimes the truth is not comfortable right i understand where they're coming from they're seeking my best interests and which leads me to 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 think that based on what you're saying is that in order for trust to continue to build the communication that comes with the trust is exceedingly important. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's part of the journey where in brilliant insight. Yeah. Right. Because you're linking that communication with action. And part of the challenge that we see is, you know, when I walk people through this conversation that you and I are having, mm -hmm. I'll say, once you start to include that other person and ask them about times when somebody was benevolent to them, you start to prompt them. Yeah it starts to get them thinking about benevolence and, and what that looked like for them and how it felt. Right. So that when I narrow the funnel further and I say, what does success look like for you, Andy? How do I help you get there? Mm. How do I act in a way that's benevolent? Yeah. It's easier for you to access that information. That's correct. And then later on, you're right. Benevolence isn't always about being nice. Later on, when I come to you and I say, hey, you remember when you told me that this is what the thing you were passionate about? This is what mattered to you. This is me trying to do that. Remember when I asked you about your audience before we started yes. and how I could be most helpful to them. Yeah. That's me trying to demonstrate benevolence. And this is me following through on that by giving some concrete suggestions around how they can have a conversation that would show benevolence in a way that's transparent in a way that lands. 
Absolutely appreciate it, Daryl. Thank you so much. So I want to look at a practical situation, and I'm glad that you hinted that you have clients who mostly are parents and, and also leaders. Mm -hmm. The main thing that I see that some people struggle with is that they get themselves caught up in role playing. Oh. And <laughs> neuroscience has proved that that is what we are calling these days the imposter syndrome. Right. And so you are one person in the office, but when you get home, it's a different persona that you put on. Right. Over time, people are confused because the question is, Daryl, who's the real you? Right. How does one who is a CEO and a family man at the same time, and I shouldn't say man because a CEO can either be male or female. So let me get right. politically right. Uh, a CEO person who has a family, how do you maintain the real you so that that level of trust remains consistent both at the professional level and at the personal level with your family? Oh, Andy. You're getting really right down to the meat of this thing now. This is that's a great question. And I would suspect that those those senior executives, if they struggle with imposter syndrome, they're not just imposters at work, they're imposters at home as well. Yeah, exactly. It's just a different role that they're putting on. Mm -hmm. and, and this goes to the heart of the problem that I was talking about before, yeah. our struggle and anxiety around being vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? Because as the leader, they're probably afraid of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing so many leaders right now struggling to let go of the things that got them where they are yeah, and step into the new roles and responsibilities that they need to, to be great at their next level mm -hmm. because they're worried about making mistakes. Yeah, And it's the same challenge for the parent who comes home. They don't want to admit that they've made a mistake. They don't want to acknowledge you know, I was working with a senior group of executives, and this is one of my favorite stories. We were talking about benevolence, mm -hmm. and I was getting them to talk about times when they had had a positive impact on somebody's lives. Right. And the energy in the room was incredible. Mm. You know, there were eight people in the room, and they each told a story about how they'd had this moment where they'd really helped someone. And everyone's smiling and happy, and there's just this buzz. And I said... This is fantastic. Now, if you could just tell me why you're so effing selfish. Okay. And they just kind of went, what? And I said, you just told me how powerful it is to help someone. Right. How much that drives a sense of meaning for you and, and a positive feeling. But you never let anyone have that feeling with you. Wow. You never make yourself vulnerable. You never ask for help. You never let anyone else come alongside and have that experience of helping you out. Yeah. And it's the same thing for a senior executive as it is for a parent. How do, how do our kids learn how to fail mm -hmm. if we don't role model it for them? Yeah. If we don't say, hey, I'm not perfect, and this is how I handled not being perfect in the world, and my expectation for you is that you're going to learn and grow and develop, and you're not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. It's that same thing for leaders who say, I can't make a mistake. If I make a mistake, the whole world falls apart. Well, your followers see that the people that you're leading see that and they start to think mistakes are unforgivable. 
And so I'm going to be incredibly cautious. I'm not going to take risks. I'm not going to be innovative. I'm not going to help this organization be agile. I'm not going to put my hand up to learn new things or grow and learn and develop because I'm going to make mistakes if I do that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, tremendously amazing. Thanks for sharing, Daryl. That's inspirational. On a lighter note, <laughs> you had a nomination to the top thought leaders on trust by Trust Across America and Trust Around the World. How did that feel for you, Daryl? Uh, it, it's very validating. Mm -hmm. um, it, it it gives me a sense of that I'm on the right path. Right. Um, but there's a challenge that I face, Andy, and that's getting the signal through the noise. Okay. So I'm different than most of the folks who talk about trust. Mm -hmm. Because I have this combination of, you know, I wrote my doctoral thesis, so I've got that deep theoretical understanding. And then I've spent 20 years helping people solve problems. So I've got that practical applied component and the learning curve is almost virtual or almost vertical. And I talk about a trust in a way that most people don't. Okay. Right? I talk about it in an applied practical approach. Um, and, and there are elements that I include in the model that I use. You know, when I, I talk about context, I talk about vulnerability. You know, most of the research treats people or treats trust like a dichotomous variable, like it's an, an old time light switch. It's either present or absent. Yeah. And the reality is we trust some people more than others. And we can't. And, and you're sitting there thinking, how did this guy get a Ph.D.? Right. This is obvious. But we can't talk about depths of relationship without talking about vulnerability. And, you know. At the back end, there's perceived outcomes. And in the middle of all this is our emotional states, whether we like or dislike somebody else. 99% of the trust research or the work out there treats people like they're rational actors. Have you met people, Andy? Like, we're, we're not always rational, right, brother? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And so, so I feel validated, but I, I'm also still frustrated. Yeah. Because I, I want the message to get out to the world. I got to tell you that the being acknowledged by some of my peers is is great. Okay. But having that moment, you know, I worked with a dad who who was estranged from his kids because mm -hmm. he'd been working in Brazil and they lived in Luxembourg. Yeah. And he came to me and he said he was one of my students and he said, "I think the relationship's broken forever. You know, they're three and five. Wow. He said. Every time I see them, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. I yell. I lose my patience. They're scared of me. They don't want anything to do with me. And in the space of a couple of months, you know, I did some coaching with him. I showed him the model. He started to change some of his behavior patterns. Yeah. At the end of the course, he said, it's completely changed. Right. My kids run to me. They throw themselves on me. They tell me they love me all the time. They, they fight over who gets to sit next to me at dinner. That's a moment. That's right. Right. That that feels more powerful than any accolade I can get. I hear you. I hear you. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. That is so wonderful. Um, I'm listening to what you're saying, Daryl, and it, it leads me to think about the current situation in our world. And, and I mean, globally, it looks 
so depressing. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to keep it real. I mean, look at the Sudan, for example. One minute they believe that they should have a peace treaty going on and then somebody does something stupid and then bang, it's back to war again. But hey, you're killing your own people, man. For what cause? Yeah. What's the purpose? What's the end game? What do you How does this help? What do you achieve? What do you accomplish at the end of it all? Israel, Lebanon, similar scenario. Yeah. Peace for long. You look at what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah. Russia. And then you go back to North Korea. And and you come back to the domestic scenarios in the US of A and, and, and what's happening in the States with these people who just believe that they have the right to take other person's lives. I'm wondering, Daryl, what is the message that you can give to our leaders of nations worldwide that would get them to a point where they would take the opportunity to reach out to their people and get everyone to try and figure out how we can live together peacefully if we can find a way to trust each other despite our rules and functions are different? Yeah. What would you say to them, Darren? Oh, okay. So, so I have my answer is going to be uh, in kind of two parts. I think. Yeah. One is, you know, if we were dealing with rational, reasonable folks as leaders, uh, I would say that there's a there's a mechanism for dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been. You know, one of the downsides of writing a doctoral thesis titled Building Trust in Hostile Environments is that people come to you with hostile situations often. Yeah. And so I've been in rooms with people who don't like each other <laughs> um, and who struggle to get along. And I've seen remarkable traction just because we're able to bleed some of that emotional piece out. Right. We, we interpret the world through stories, mm -hmm. Andy. And, and if we've got a negative story, we'll find confirming evidence of it. And one of the reasons that we have some of these disconnects is that maybe your story is different than mine. And we haven't taken the time to actually understand each other's story and work together to create a shared narrative that yep. makes sense for both of us. And I think it's absolutely possible. There is hope. We can do this. We just need to pull together. Yep. And, and we need more people informed about what to do. So that's, that's part one of my answer. Part two is that we're seeing a dearth of real character when it comes to leadership right now. Wow. We're seeing our expectation is that our leaders will have our best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. And the structures seem to be in place to promote people who are indifferent to our needs. Okay. Who are profoundly narcissistic mm -hmm. because most people who have really profound leadership skills also have a care and concern for those around them. Yeah. And so often I'll ask leaders who I think are exceptional. Do you want to move up in the organization or would you like to be a global leader or, and the answer is no, I, I wouldn't want to, I can't throw my family under the bus like that. I wouldn't put my family at risk like that. Yeah. So who steps into those roles, Andy? People who only care about themselves. Right. And so partly we get the leadership maybe that we deserve. Wow. Because we, we haven't created 
a shared narrative of what a great leader looks like. We haven't created the systems that support them being exceptional and, and defining what that means, right? So I don't want a leader who's the prettiest or who fills whatever category. I want a leader who cares about people at a deep level and who is flawed and can make mistakes and learn from them. Yeah. Wow. Daryl, is it, is it possible that people from two different worlds, two different cultures, different beliefs, different um, strains as far as being affected by ecological systems, can they come together and still have an alignment of values? So that despite the fact that they have these differences, there's just one or two things. How do we find one or two things that is so insurged by commonality that we can use that as a factor to get some level of trust? How do we get people to come to that understanding that there's that hope, there's that inkling of hope, but how do we lead them to discover it? to find it well partly where are you broadcasting from andy uh the caribbean trinidad and tobago right and i'm from canada off the west coast right and you and i come from different cultures and backgrounds different socioeconomic standards probably different experiences i'm really enjoying my conversation with you <laughs> so am i my friend so am i so, so you and i are actually role models to to show the proof that this can happen right yeah Be because i i've made myself vulnerable to you i've shared stuff with you and your audience um i trust you right you and i have done it just in this last 45 minutes yeah so absolutely it's possible absolutely and partly it's about finding shared common ground okay you know and and when you start talking about having a passion for improving the lives of the people that, that you serve, yeah. we were copacetic <laughs> brother, because that's, that's my desire as well. Right. So we found this one powerful piece. And one of the things, you know, I've spoken to people who are from the right side of the political spectrum, from the left side of the political spectrum, yeah. from countries all over the world. Yeah. The model holds and i'm able to talk to them in a way that is compelling and powerful non-judgmental that allows us to use this framework to try to understand each other and have a conversation at a deeper level okay so partly it's about being informed and it's about understanding you know asking questions like you're doing right now i talk about it as a socratic approach Right. We try to understand the other person and try to find connections. Okay. I have a seeing eye dog named Drake. <laughs> and he has such a positive brain chemistry. Yeah. Right. He's got a positive story about virtually everyone we meet. Mm. If we could channel our inner Drake and start with a positive story about each other, yeah. world would be a better place. Wow. That's powerful. I was listening to an interview with uh, Deepak Chopra 
and it's it's amazing this guy has written some 93 books i, I don't know how he found the time <laughs> all of that but hats off to him right and he was asked the question how is it that we seem to be so busy you know everybody is always busy wrapped up doing something and we miss those moments in life where we can really connect truly understand and see people as they are. And he said the main reason for that in response is we have become human doings instead of remaining human beings. Mm. We need to find a way, Daryl, to stop doing and start being by taking time out to recognize that the world is a beautiful place, that we are here for a purpose. And once we find that purpose and we can align it to our destiny and be givers instead of takers, right? it would be so much better for us to get along with each other, at least as a, as a starting point. And then we can grow and develop from there. And I'm, I'm thinking, wow, that is so profound, but are we going to do it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you're right at the nub there, right? Because... Because we, we hear this profound information and then the struggle that we have is, now how do I do that? Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a big focus of the work that I do, which is really focused on, okay, now you're going to practice this skill. Yes. Now you're going to try this out. Yeah. And, you know, I wish that people could wander the world with Drake the way that I do. Mm -hmm. Because they would experience humanity as kind, loving. Everyone wants to be helpful. There's... Well, not everyone, right? But we, we encounter so many people who want to reach out and be helpful and, and connect. Right. And we're scared. Hmm. Yeah. We have, we're, we're afraid to be vulnerable to each other. We're afraid to admit that, hey, I want to connect for fear of rejection. Hmm. We're afraid to reach out and say, hey, I need help. Um, and that place of being, you know, I could approach you and say, Hey, I want to help you. And you starting to feel like, Oh, what's your, what's your goal? Why are you trying to be helpful? What do you want from me? Yeah. But if I approach you and say, brother, I just need some help right now. That's a much easier conversation for you to have. Yeah. And then it creates this norm of reciprocity. You feel like I helped Daryl out if he was able to help me out, I'd be okay with that. Okay. And so a big part of this is, you know, when we're trying to build trust with others, sometimes we need to go first. Mm -hmm. We need to trust them first to make it easier for them. And we need to understand that <clears throat> uncertainty, if it's high, the vulnerability has got to be low, right? So we've got to find a way to figure out how are they vulnerable? How do I help them? How do I reduce that for them? And so that they, so that they can get more comfortable with me. So that, that uncertainty can start to go down. Yep. So that the range of vulnerability they can tolerate starts to grow. Truly amazing. Wonderful narrative. Thank you so much. Let me just take a look and see. Ah, comments, comments, comments. Wow. So Loretta Packett says, good day, guys. I'm listening. Even if I didn't type in, uh, she's in a class. And she says to a comment that you would have said earlier, so true, sir. 
And then something hit her. She didn't say what it was, but her response was an emoji with two hearts on the eyes and the words, my goodness. <laughs> so, hey, even if we have made impact to one person, absolutely done something and that's incredible it makes a difference it's value and it matters it matters it matters so daryl we are about to the end of our show and i would like you to now tell people how they can make contact with you how they can reach out to you get your publication um if they need your professional services they want you to speak and stuff how, how can they connect with you so people can reach out to me uh, by email, daryl at trustunlimited.com, D-A-R-R-Y-L. Mm -hmm. They can also go to my website, trustunlimited.com, yeah. and they'll find a link to the book there, or they can go anywhere that, that books are available. It's available as an audiobook, an ebook, yeah. hardcover. Um, and I think I try to have sort of three different levels of intervention. Level one is the book, people reading it and trying to apply it. Level two is the masterclass that I've developed. Um, and level three is sort of these in-depth courses that, that are sort of multi-week in length. Um, they can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Right. Daryl Stickle. Um, and if I can be helpful, please let me know. Yeah. Okay, great. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing and thanks for being on our show, Daryl Stickle one of the world's leading experts on trust with over 20 years of experience. You heard him speak about the book that you can get, Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. It has been a pleasure and a tremendously inspirational and informative episode, sitting speaking with Daryl. We'll have tremendous fun, but at the same time, shared so much golden nuggets <laughs> and we are glad to have an impact on Loretta at least as she has been tuning in to our program. So until next time, this is Andy of Andy's Personal Development in the breakout room together with Daryl Stickle saying, so long people, remember the three watchwords. You should always seek for these every day and in every situation in your life, health, happiness, and prosperity. It makes a great difference when your perspective in life is based on those three virtual and moral principles. So until next time, I'm saying so long. Godspeed. God bless. Shalom. Namaste. Bye for now. Hold on, Daryl.